Peter chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 8 and read down to verse 12 together. Verse 8 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires a li- a lo- to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let us pray together this morning as we ask God to speak to us. Father God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truths that you present to us this morning through your holy word. Father God, I pray that amidst all the noise of life, of all the information, among all the motivation, among all the things that we're hearing, God, just help us to filter through and just to hear from you, to see you, God, in all our doubts, fears, and shames as we lay those at your feet today. God, that we all come as broken people in desperate need of what it is that you have for us. So, Father, God, open our hearts. God, open our minds. God, let us see what it is that you have for us here this morning. Lord, we love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So, church, this morning we pick up and continue in our series that we've called The Outsider's Christian Life in a Resistant Culture. What it means to be, you know, a Christian and to be a part of a cultural context that is marginalized or being pushed to the outside of the center of culture. We've talked about it over and over and over again that the more time goes on, the less us as Christians, or if you're here this morning, you're a Christian, the less that you'll be welcome at the cool kids table and that people will look at what we believe, what we do and how, we're, how we react to certain things within culture and they're not going to like it. They're not going to accept it. And so what this whole series has been about is it's really been about us navigating that cultural context and how do we continue to have influence in the culture without being influenced by the culture. And I think that's the biggest thing for us to navigate and how we continue to have, you know, the thing we talked about in the very beginning, the worst thing we can do is, as Christians is be escapists where we uh, escape from the culture, try to completely remove ourselves from our influence or how we can reach our hand into spaces and places that we engage with because what God has ultimately called us to is He's called us as Christians to be a people that influence people around us. That he's called us to be a people that are present, be a people who are wanting to see change in individual lives. You know, and, and what, uh, what P- uh, Peter has done a great job of leading up to this moment and, and where we've come from through these last few weeks is he's focused on three very, uh, very common, very practical, major social spaces in life for us. You know, we talked about society or kind of the governmental structure and how we deal with that. And then he talked about employers and employment and the workforce, how we 
deal with submission in that. And then we talked about the family, how we deal with submission within that and how we, uh, with the outside influences, how we kind of retain uh, what God has called us to in the family between a husband and a wife and how we navigate those spaces together. Now Peter shifts his focus from the family unit as individuals to the family unit as believers in God. He shifts focus to the family of God, the church, the faith family, as we like to call it, the people that are gathered together, this established group of diverse people that holds, you hold, if you're here this morning as a Christian, you hold a valuable place in the work of God in our community and in your world and in your family right now. And so what Peter kind of shifts focus to is to kind of uh, feed into how we as Christians deal with each other and how we kind of navigate the cultural context of that and how within that context it can be influential in our world and in our society. You know, and uh, as we get into it, there are going to be three things that we see that we as Christians must be defined by. We must be defined by to greatly influence how we live and function within the context of the church of Jesus in the culture that doesn't agree with us, that presses in around us, and maybe even be drawing us out to act as if they act. The church should look and be and act differently. And so that's what God has called us to. And that's what Peter writes here about as he can kind of uh, unpacks some things that culturally for them would be different. Because for, you know, for the longest time, they may have been living with this particular way to deal with each other, how to act with each other. Um, and so what God has called us to and what he's leaning us towards is a different kind of countercultural approach to how we deal with each other, specifically as the church. And so to sum things up to kind of get us into would be this sentence here. And I want you to kind of go into everything we talk about with this mindset. It would be this, that how we think, live and why we do it all defines the depth of our faith and the reach of our influence. The depth of our faith and the reach of our influence. And I think for us as Christians, this should be our highest goal. For one is to have the depth within our Christian life that we're not still wading in the kiddie pool of our faith. No matter, you know, and, and, and no matter if you're a new Christian or you've been a Christian for, for, for decades, you know, our, our goal should be to have Christian depth, to know what we believe, why we believe it. But not only that, not only that, but that... Because of the depth of our faith, and regardless of where we are, that the reach, that our influence has reach into spaces beyond us. And when we can kind of navigate under these confines of what God has laid out over the past few weeks in First Peter, I believe that for us, and while we felt like this series was just so vital and important within this cultural context for us even today, is that it helps dictate how we live and how we live for influence, how we live for movement and motivation and growth of the kingdom of God. So three attributes of us as Christians as we deal with each other that are vital for us and seeing growth and movement in our Christian lives and in our walk with the Lord. So the first thing is this that is important for us is that, our, our, we, that we would have an authentic attitude. That we would be defined by our, our authentic attitude. In verse 8, he says this, he says, Finally, all of you, so remember he's talking to Christians within, the, in, within, the, in, within Rome. They're under oppression from the Emperor Nero at the time. And he says, all of you, all of you have unity of mind. 
And so what does that mean for us? What does that mean? And we've talked about this a little bit before, but when the Bible talks about unity and when it says here, it says unity of mind or another translation may say it like this, like mindedness. Now, what is it talking about? Because when you look at the scope of Christianity, we may not would always consider it unified, right? And so for, for us, I want us to bring it down more into a level for us with us here and even being able to, as we kind of move outside of that, maybe kind of, kind of consider some other kind of aspects of Christianity, or we would call it denominations, these kind of other parts of or Christianity. But for us, let's look at it kind of through the, the scope of our local body. When we talk about having a unity or likeness of mind, that remember, and we say this all the time, that unity does not mean uniformity. But what unity means is unity is cooperation in the midst of diversity. And so what's the best illustration for that? Well, I think, I think Paul gives us the best illustration in Corinthians when he talks about the body of Christ, when he talks about the church being a body with all these parts, with all these uh, different, uh, different extremities and these things that are all connected to one head, which is Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> I think the... I think the body illustration is the best illustration to show us what unity really looks like. Because, you know, when he talks about a hand, an arm, fingers, like they look differently. They function differently. They do different things. But they all are, are together with one mind, the head being Jesus Christ, for a common purpose, for a common goal. That they have this direction that they're moving in. That they're different roles, different ways of movement, but they're united. And so for us as Christians that... You know, even within this church, with even within our local body, that, that we may differ on how things are to be done. You know, and, uh, and, and, and even in Christianity, even outside of, say, our local body, that there are primary and secondary issues, okay? There are things that are make or break for us as Christians that we have to hold tightly to, that we cannot let go of. When we talk about the deity of Jesus, that Jesus was God. For me, you know, for us, when we talk about the inerrancy of God's word, that it is perfect, that it is unf unfailing, you know, when we talk about the Trinity, when we talk about, you know, uh, uh, the fact that Jesus was sinless, when we talk about that, uh, you know, that the uh, idea of, um, of, of substantiary atonement, that Jesus died for our sins because it was the required penalty for the sins of the world. You know, these things that we cannot let go of, that they are primary issues. And then, you know, even within this church, we may have different opinions about secondary issues, you know, but there, there are things for us that we may see differently, that we may approach differently, but there are musts that we, uh, that we hold on to. And some of the musts are that we must seek to honor Jesus. That is, is a must for a church of Jesus Christ, is that we must seek to honor Jesus, we must seek to win the lost, and we must seek to build His church on earth. These are musts. And we can find a unity if we are moving in those directions together. All right, there may be little things here or there that we can have conversations about and maybe even debate about or talk about and kind of work through. But our goal, our ultimate goal has to be seeking Jesus and honoring Jesus, winning the loss and building the church. John 17, 20 through 21, he says, I do not ask for these only, this is Jesus talking, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be, they may all be one 
just as you, Father, and are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's something very unique about a group of people gathering together, moving in a common direction for a common goal and a common purpose that can be and should be influential. I mean, in all reality, if there's any issues with the growth of the church or the influence of people around us as a church body, as a Christian body, it's not because of anything God's doing wrong. But it may be where we're falling short in following and moving in this unified direction together. Now, hear this. I am not asking for or, or, or believing in some type of big giant religion where we all come together and we're all under one church. And that will never happen and it can't happen. But what we can do as a local body and in Bible believing churches together is we can be unified in a single direction for a single goal, for a single purpose. And the world around us can, I believe with all my heart, the world around us can be influenced and they can be one. You know, uh, in the second century, uh, uh, a man named Tertullian, he is a uh, kind of a, a, a religious author and, and, and kind of a religious man. Well, during this time, he says in some writings, he says that the Roman government was very skeptical about the growth of the church in the second century. It would have been sometime between 100 AD to 200 AD. That's the second century. So the early life of the church, shortly after, you know, the establishment, shortly after this letter, this letter is written around 64 AD. And so shortly after that, as the church is expanding, the Roman government was skeptical. They were curious. They believed that the, 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 these Christians, they must be doing something crazy, right? They must be like planning some massive rebellion to overthrow the Roman government or, or they must be handing out money or they, there's got to be something that they're doing to make them grow. And so what the Roman government did is they started sending spies into these Christian gatherings because they wanted to know, like, what are they doing? Like, what, is, what are these Christians doing that is contributing to their growth? And I think that for us as a church, as we're trying to reach the lost world around us, and obviously we would love to see growth and all these things, I think the thing for the church, you know, if you go through YouTube or search church growth online, you're going to find hundreds and hundreds of methods for church growth. And there's going to be different ranges of things. Some things that you'll look at, you'll be like, well, that seems uh, you know, doable. And then some things you look at and, that's, and you'll think to yourself, this seems so wacky and crazy. There's no way that the church of God should be doing this. But so he says that, that the Roman government sent these spies into churches and they wanted to see what was going on. And this is the report that they brought back to the Roman government. And this is what Tertullian wanted to share during this time. He says that they had this to say. He says these Christians are very strange people. He says they meet in an empty room to worship. He says they do not have an image. He says they speak of one by the name of Jesus who is absent, but whom they seem to be expecting at any time. He says, and then, then they go on to say this. He says, and my, how they love him. How they love him, and not only that, but how they love one another. Can you imagine that? Being a church, a church growth method that is simply built on the idea that there is a group of people gathered in an empty room worshiping someone who is not physically present with them or no image that we're worshiping. 
But with an expectation that is coming, we're getting into Advent. We'll be preaching uh, an Advent message starting next week. It's all about anticipation. Anticipating the coming of, of their deity at any moment. But not only that, but oh my, how they love Him. That we would grow a church simply off the idea that a group of people are gathered that just love Jesus radically. And not only that, but they love one another. There is something so beautiful about a group of people that are different, that have different thoughts, opinions, and ways of life, but come into a group, come into a space together, and they not only love God together, but that we love each other. In all our differences, in all our issues, that we can find unity by loving one another. So how can we accomplish having a unity of mind? As, as, as verse 8 tells us, kind of having the creating this authentic attitude towards each other. And I think the first thing within this, the first and, and, and important thing is this, that we know the mind of God. To have unity of mind for the things of God, we have to be pursuing and trying to know the mind of God. And this is vital for us. We can't be of one mind, the mind of Jesus, if we don't know what his mind is. But the beautiful thing about that is that God has given us His revealed Word to know these things. And these things can shape our minds. Just a few verses uh, for you to know and for you to read this morning. Romans 12, 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 1 Corinthians 2, 16. He says, For who has, understa- who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ and we can gather that through the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 1.10 He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, you, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And we find that in Jesus. Romans 12, 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And so our wisdom, our knowledge, our understanding of life and how we navigate life has to come from something outside of us when Paul would tell us in Romans he says don't be wise in your own sight don't think that you have it all together don't think that you know everything you need to know seek that wisdom outside of yourself the book of Proverbs constantly communicates this it constantly communicates this idea of us seeking after wisdom seeking after calling out to wisdom wisdom pursuing wisdom there has to be the gathering of information and the growing of our spiritual souls has to come from something outside of ourselves we need to stop believing that we know and God has given us this outlet he's given us the church where we talk through verses and we communicate it together this is how we grow Romans 15 5 says may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus and so not only do we need to know the mind of God but the second thing is we need to embrace gospel elements in our attitude and then he kind of lays this out Developing this unified mind, it it requires these three things that Peter mentions that are a part of this authentic attitude that we're trying to cultivate. And the first thing he says here in verse uh, verse 8, he says, have a unity of mind. And then he says, have sympathy. So what is sympathy? 
What is that? That's being aware of others, having compassion, pity towards someone else's misfortune. Listen, I'm thankful. Yesterday we played an uh, incredible tournament, and if anybody here has played, then you'll see them limping around this morning. If they're my age, some of the younger ones, they're not. But, you know, I'm thankful that my, that Grant, my, my son, he was like, Dad, you want me to run for you? He was having sympathy for me. <laughs> he saw me limping and grabbing my back and stretching constantly, and, uh, you know, and so he was mindful of my misfortune, which was my inability to move, and this morning I'm carrying that on a little bit. But sympathy is having a mindset that is aware of others' struggles, and even to a sense feeling some of that weight. I'm not saying that we bear the weight of every person that's struggling on, on the earth, because listen, we'll, we'll, we'll get overwhelmed by that. You know, we'll be just smothered in despair if we're constantly focused on the, the, the hardships and the, the, the hatefulness that goes on in our world. I mean, it's obvious that, that there's a lot of bad that goes on. But what God has given us the church for is He's given us this space at which we can filter through and kind of focus in. You know, God, every single one of you, in some way, and me included, we have misfortunes in our life. We have things that we're navigating through. And so listen, God hasn't said, listen, be aware and constantly aware of every misfortune. I'm not saying don't be aware of things that come across your path from people outside of this space or outside of, of the Christian faith. But he has put us together to be sympathetic for each other, to know where each other's struggling, to know the hardships that you're going through. To be mindful, and we should be a people that are not living with tunnel vision. That we only see what's right in front of us. But we would be aware of each other. We would know if someone's struggling with their marriage, someone's struggling in raising their kids, someone's struggling at their job, someone's struggling financially, somebody's struggling with some types of addiction, somebody's struggling with anger, anxiety, whatever it might be, that we would not have tunnel vision and miss these people around us that are struggling with these things. We would be aware we would be aware that God has called us to a sympathetic mindset. And within that, we find unity of mind. The second thing would be this, brotherly love. He says it here in verse 8, brotherly love. And we've talked about this type of love before, but this is a familial love. This is a love between siblings. This is a love between individuals who may, if you know, if you have siblings, and there have been times where maybe you didn't like your siblings, maybe you wanted to punch your siblings or lock your siblings in a closet. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you love them because they're your family. Their blood. And so for us as Christians, when we have put our faith in Jesus, we are blood relatives because we have all been washed by the blood of Jesus and we have been forgiven by what He's done for us. So we have a family unit that is here and people who aren't here and people of the faith that God has given us in our lives, a familial love of people that we may not like, but if we choose to love, we will learn to like. And if, even if we have such a hard time liking them, hopefully praying that we will at least honor them and we will have sympathy for them when they struggle or when they fall. God has called us to have brotherly love. In uh, John uh, 13, 35, it says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Hebrews 13, 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. Let it endure. Let it be something that carries on in your Christian life. Not a one and done, not just a limited circumstantial type thing, but let it continue. Let this define you. Brotherly love, familial love. And then the last thing is this, not only to have sympathy, not only have brotherly love and a tender heart, it says, as it kind of connects to sympathy, but also a humble mind. 
A humble mind. So, so what is a humble mind? You know, I believe this is the element at which a unified mind really builds off of. Because without this element, I don't believe you ever accomplish unified mindset. I don't believe you can even be sympathetic. I don't believe you can have brotherly love unless we can have a humble mind. Because humility is the key to unity. Humility is the key to unity. Lowliness of mind. You know, we've said this before, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is a foundation for courtesy. Humility is a foundation for love. This is me. We can't have a like mind without a humble mind. We can't have this mindset that elevates ourselves, elevates our own opinions, elevates our own thoughts above everybody so that with the way we believe that we think our mind is better than everyone else's mind and we, com- we co- constantly reinforce to ourselves that they're all wrong, that they have no place to even speak or to say. And so when we don't have an elevated mind, we can't have brotherly love because we're already looking down on other people. And we can't have sympathy because we don't feel bad for them. Because when you don't have a humble mind, your mind immediately goes to this place where you think to, about people. You think they are where they are because of the way they think, live, and act. And I don't feel bad for them. That is not a humble mindset. That is not brotherly love. That is not sympathy. That is not being tenderhearted. When we think within our mindsets, you are where you are because of who you are and what you've done. That is not a humble mind. But this humble mind enters into this diverse space that the church that God has given us. And we hear each other. I'm not saying that we always agree. And we've said that. Being unified in mind is not always agreeing. But it's being humble in how we enter into those disagreements. It's being humble in how we lean into someone's life and find sympathy for them. It's leaning in and having a humble mind in how we have brotherly love towards people who have either one hurt us or disappointed us. A humble mind is a foundation for unity. And the second thing is this, not only that, our, that, our, that we would have an authentic attitude, but we would also be defined by our reasonable response. Our reasonable response. In verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling or slander for reviling. And so when he says evil, what is, what is he saying here? I think a lot of times we have a difficulty defining what evil is because sometimes we feel like evil is this or evil is this, and sometimes it can be objective. But... This word specifically could also be translated as worthless or also injurious, if that's even a word, injurious, that the intentions of it don't accomplish anything or they seek to hurt someone, that that is what he is saying by do not repay evil, do not repay repay worthless things with more worthless things. And then he says reviling. This is kind of like slander speaking ill of someone. Don't repay this worthless conversation or this worthless communication for more worthless communication. He's saying Christians, we should be better than that. And this would be so countercultural for them because they would have had this mindset of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that if someone's done me wrong, they deserve the wrong that I bring back to him. But Jesus steps into this space. And you know, and some people will mention, some people will mention there's a, there is a portion in the Old Testament where it's kind of communicated in that kind of capacity, but we have to understand that for this, for them, even in the Old Testament, he, Jesus, God's trying to wrangle them in, because human nature isn't just to do eye for an eye. Now, let's be honest. Human nature isn't to just do eye for an eye. We want to do eye for a head. 
Like, I'm going to take a little bit more because I want you to pay even more than what you did to me. Let's be honest. We wouldn't just, we, if, if it was all up to us, we wouldn't just cut off a toe for a toe. No, you, you cut off my toe, I'm going to chop off your leg. Like, I want you to suffer because, I mean, in human nature, that's, that's who we are. Listen, we inherently are, we don't want good, especially when it deals with people who have hurt us. Especially when it deals with people who have disappointed us, and especially within our cultural context when it deals with people who disagree very passionately with us. It says, do not repay worthless for worthless. The greatest challenge to our love for each other, the greatest challenge for our love to each other comes when we are wronged. And so the way that the Christian church should be different, and Matthew talks about this in talking about conflict revolution, uh, resolution and all these things, that for us as Christians, there should be no dispute, there should be no argument or personality conflict between believers that should ever linger. Anytime we let conflict linger between each other as Christians, and, you know, and I've heard it said like this, it's like allowing someone to live rent-free in your mind. You can never move past it. You can never grow from it. And you can never allow God to fully envelop within that space because it's already preoccupied with someone that you're holding bitterness and unforgiveness towards. Listen, and I'll say all the time, there's a difference between trust and forgiveness. You know, forgiveness is not earned. Trust is. And listen, people hurt us and we lose trust in them. But it doesn't mean we can't forgive. And that's for us as Christians where we can't allow, even among disputes. And listen, I've, I've heard people allow disputes to linger, things that were like here, horrible things. Or, and then I've heard kind of the middle ground. And then I've heard things on the bottom level where someone's like, someone didn't mention that it was my birthday and I've been mad at them for 15 years about it. Like, I mean, people, especially Christians, we have such high expectations of how people should act or do or talk to us that we will be just infuriated with people because they don't acknowledge us in a certain moment or they don't celebrate us in a certain moment or there's something that they don't do. They didn't let my child do a special in the, in the, in the Christmas play or something like that. Like we'll be just so furious with people to the point that we will, we will just disconnect ourselves from the body of Christ because of such min, minimal things. Now listen, I know that that's a, a vast contrast because some people have been legitimately hurt by the church legitimately just destroyed by mistreatment within the church. And there is no situation at which we should belittle that. But what we should be praying for where the church is different is we should be praying for resolution. We should be praying for at least the individual that is hurt. We should be praying for them to find a space at which they can move forward from that. Where they can grow from that. Where they can say, you know, we say all the time when we're talking about conflict or resolution, you can't control how someone else responds. All you can control is what you do in the midst of it. And listen, if you go to someone and you say, listen, this is what happened. This is where I was hurt. This is where I was, I was disappointed. Or this is how I was affected. The prayer is in the midst of Christian humility that that person could say, listen, even if I don't understand it, I'm, I really am sorry that I hurt you that way. But then you may also get those situations where they're like, hey, sorry, I don't get it. I don't, I don't think you should be bothered by that. And I think you need to get over it. And listen, you may get those responses, and that is not humility of mind. But for you, at least you can say, as an individual, that you went and you said, I'm sorry. 
you know, or this is how I was hurt. And this is what the Bible tells us to do. If you feel sinned against against a brother or sister, that you go to them individually and personally. But remember that that's not the now if you've been around church long enough, you know, that's not the natural response. If I'm hurt, then I'm going to go to them and I'm going to say, hey, let me tell you about what they did to me. Let me tell you about what they said to me. And then it begins to create this culture of backbiting and kind of conversations in corners. And you just begin kind of slanting. And then you find yourself in this place where you're reviling someone or slandering them in dark corners. And it never contributes to any uh, growth or, or movement or, or, or forgiveness or expansion. You're know, moving through this space. And listen, it's, it's, this is not an easy thing. You know, our natural response is hostility. Our natural response to hostility is retaliation. But it's only through the love of Jesus for our enemies that we can break that cycle of wrongdoing. Because some people, especially Christians, unfortunately, we can find ourselves in this carousel of wrongdoing, right? Where we act a certain way, think a certain way, talk a certain way about people or persons or each other. And it's like no one ever jumps off. No one ever gets off and says, I'm not going to contribute to the round and round that we're doing with this issue. Someone has to relent. Someone has to step in and say, listen, let's handle this the way Jesus has told us to. Listen, this is what happened. This is how I was hurt or this is how I hurt you. And I'm sorry. And, And allow that process to begin. Listen, it may not be a quick process. It may take even more years of time of reconciliation and, 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 and these things to happen. But we have to, as Christians, this needs to be what the outside world sees of us. Resolving conflict, engaging where we've been hurt. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice or hate, it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Romans 12, 17, he says, repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. I love that he says, give thought, think about how you can do things, do what is honorable, and not only in the sight of God, which would be very private, but he says, do it in the sight of all. Not for all's praise, but so that we could show and reveal to people that it is possible to reconcile hurt. It is possible to see good things come from broken situations. But that only happens when we put ourselves in these places of humility to be able to see this process begin. Proverbs 20, verse 22. He says, do not say I will repay evil. But he says this, wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. God is engaged with our conflicts with us. Don't respond in emotion. Don't respond in anger or any of these things. He says, wait on the Lord and he will deliver you. And I believe that God will guide us through those resolute situations. And and they're awkward and they're weird. And it's hard to have conversations, especially with people who have either hurt us or that we've hurt. You know, like if I know I've disappointed someone or if I've done something wrong to them, it is so hard to go in that space because it's awkward. And listen, it's happened to me, but it's awkward. But what's beautiful is once that ball starts rolling, man, it, it feels so natural Especially for a Christian, for us, it feels so natural once the conversation begins. And you can like, actively feel things fixing as you're talking. Because the Spirit of God is in the midst of that. 
God is working through that. But we never get to that point unless we would be willing to jump over that hill of awkward and kind of step off into that space and see what God is doing. We'll never experience the beauty of Christian conflict resolution until we put ourselves in uncomfortable situations and begin to have that conversation. And then he continues on. He says in verse 9, On the contrary, bless, for to do this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. The person who God has given undeserved blessing instead of judgment should seek the blessings he will receive when giving the same free gift of forgiveness to someone who has wronged us. Give this gift of forgiveness. And, and that is not an easy thing. And there's a lot of discernment that has to navigate through that, especially when you're bringing into trust elements and whether it's in a relationship or friendship or something like that. Luke 6, 28 says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Romans 12, 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 1 Corinthians 4.12, he says, And we labor working with our own hands when reviled. We bless when persecuted and we endure. We continue on. And listen, a lot of times we would think, well, if I'm the one who, who brings humility to the situation, then that's weakness. But remember, we, every situation, we've talked about the family, we've talked about government, we've talked about you know, uh, the workplace, you know, all these elements that we've talked about, we talk about submission, we talk about humility. This is anything but weakness. Listen, the easy thing to do is to disconnect or to continue to be angry or allow things to linger in our mind. That's the easy thing. The, the thing that takes strength, the thing that takes courage, the thing that takes endurance is to lean into those relationships, especially as the church, lean into those relationships and to begin to seek resolution and reconciliation in the midst of that, that we would have reasonable responses in that, that space, in that circle. That is true strength. That is true strength. Strength for people. And so how do we bless those who have wronged us? I think an obvious but vital element of that is we pray for them. We pray for them. We pray for, for good for them. We pray for redemption for them. If they're an unbeliever, we pray for God to save their soul. We, we pray for resolution. We pray for them to come to a place where God will use them. Because I believe what happens when we begin to actively pray, not pray that, you know, from this pious place where we're better than them. God, I pray that they would be as good as I am. I'm not saying we pray for them to like get on our level. But we pray. We pray asking good for them. We pray asking the Lord to bless them, to be with them, to use them. Because what that happens is when we begin to pray for someone who has mistreated us, it reminds us that they are an image bearer of God and they still have value. You know, that was the same thing. We talked about praying for our leaders you know, even when we don't agree or don't like them, even if they're believers or unbelievers, when we pray for them, it reminds us that they're image bearers of God. And God can still use them. God, and God is using them. Because remember, guys, our battle, our battle is against an enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against each other, even when each other has wronged us. The issue, any problem that we have between each other is not us, but it's the enemy working among us. It's the spirit of deception that works in the lives of people when we have allowed it to. It's the spirit of the enemy, the spirit of the prince of the power of the air that still rules in this area under the hand of God, but still rules and still influences us. It's not individual people. You know, it's not me versus you. 
But it's us versus the spirit of deception and the enemy and the devil in our lives that is trying to manipulate us, that is trying to deceive us, that is trying to draw us away from each other because the enemy knows that the strength of the church is in its unity. And we've said this all the time. The enemy works in isolation. The Spirit of God works in community. And so God knows. God knows. And I mean, the, the enemy knows that if he can divide a church, if he can separate people with significant issues or minimum issues, tiny issues, whatever the scope of the issues are, the enemy knows that if he can plant a seed of deceit in your mind, and make you angry, even just about a tiny thing, that he knows that if he can isolate you, then he can cultivate and grow that deceit. He can grow that to the point that maybe 10 years later, you don't even remember what you're mad at the church about, but you haven't been to church in 10 years because of whatever it was. And what, you, what, what the enemy has done is he's neutralized us as individuals when he does that to us. He has removed us from our influential place in our community. He's, in, he's removed us from our influential place within our family, with our spouse, within the context of a local church that God has blessed and ordained and given us to have. He's removed our influence. And then the second thing, not only pray for them, but that we would show kindness and self-control even in the face of worthless or slanderous action. Kindness and self-control. Control. The third thing is this, and then I'll finish up. The third thing that, that would define us is our meaningful motivation. Our meaningful motivation. And I love several times Peter has quoted this particular psalm, but he quotes Psalm 34 again. And he says this. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. And I think all of us, we want that. We, we want to love life. We want to see good days. And so what Peter is doing is he's tying everything we've talked about and being Christians unified with a like mind, with a purpose of serving God and seeing His kingdom grow and save the lost, that he says that all of these things contribute an attitude, you know, a response. All of these things are driven by this motivation to love life and see good days. I think removing this from the context of a Christian writing and putting it out in the world, there's probably a bumper sticker that someone has has that is attributed to someone else that says something along the lines of that I just want to love my life and see good things happen and see good days. But this is not a, a worldview that is separate from the, the creator of the universe. He tells us, David writes in Psalm 34 that we should, whoever desires to love life, God wants us to love life. And not only that, but He wants us to experience good days. But it's not for our own good, but it's for the good of God's kingdom and it's for the good of each other. That He's called us to experience that. The believers have been granted the ability to enjoy life. John 10.10, 10, He says, The thief comes only to, kill, uh, to steal and kill and destroy. He says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Church, the key to life and living 
has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And listen, we say over and over and over again, this is not a, 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 a proclamation for some kind of prosperity gospel, some type of you know thing where it's like if you have enough faith, then life will never be hard. Absolutely, that is not what the Bible communicates to us. This Bible that we love and cherish so much, it tells us that our lives will be difficult. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that, there are promises that we can hold on to. In Psalm 34, I just want to read through these verses just so we can see these together. Psalm 34, verse 1 down to verse 3. He says, David writes, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And so not only that, but our motivation in this good life, in the loving life, in these good days is driven by this idea that we may experience difficulties, we may experience hardships, but that God is leaning in, that God has a desire for his people. And so, you know, in that verse, when it continues on, he says, let him keep his tongue from evil let his, let, and his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from evil or worthless things or injurious things and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And so he's telling us that good days and loving life is, 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 is a vital, the vital element of that is how we control what we say, how we treat and act with each other, how we do these things in our day to day. And continuing on in Psalm 34, he even says, he says, but if we experience that, that in this, we'll experience answered prayers and communion with God when this is what we seek. Verse four down to verse seven. He says, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And not only that, but we can also taste the goodness of God. In verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then in verse 18, not only that, but we can sense the nearness of God in our lives. That every day we can know that God is near to us. In verse 18, he says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So listen, as Sean and, and the, the, the team come up, as we end with a time of just worship and reflection this morning, I, I hope for us that we can be driven by this idea that as we grow closer as a church, as we consider each other as a church, an authentic attitude, a reasonable response, meaning, <coughs> meaningful motiva motivation. That when the, the world is crashing around us and pressing on us, that the greatest gift we have, church, is each other. The greatest thing God has given us is each other and that we would not have tunnel vision and miss each other's needs, but we would be leaning into that context and the way we would respond would be graceful and would be loving and would be compassionate with the desire to see growth and the desire to see people come to God. Church, God has given us a faith family for support, for security, and most of all for growth and discipleship and development. Listen, I love... Uh, I, I, I quote him frequently, but a man by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he, um, he, he, he was alive during World War II, and he says this. He says, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you 
your life. When we say it will cost us our life, it's this idea where we stop focusing on ourselves. And for the church to grow, for the church to develop and to see the kingdom of God expand, it requires us to stop worrying about our own needs and start living for the church. Start living for each other. Because it's within that, he tells us, it's within that that we will see good days. That we will love life when we stop living for ourselves and start living for those around us. Within the con- you're, you're, maybe it's within the context of your own family that we could be better there. The church that God has given us in our home, at our address where we live at. God has given me a tiny church, a gathering of people to be responsible for, to love on, to lead, to be mindful of. And not only that, but then God has given us this local church to be mindful of, to love and to lead with and to lead towards. And then not only that, but God has given us the universal church to be praying for, to be seeking towards the kingdom of God and its growth and its goodness in our communities so that we would see good days and love life. God has given us this. He's given us this responsibility. He's given us this task to enter into together. Could we as Christians this morning, could we do that together? Could we be those people together, loving the church and wanting to see good for each other and the growth of the kingdom? And maybe this morning, as you pray and as we sing and as we sing together, that if there's conflict within your heart with a child of God, that you would begin to pray towards seeking resolution in that conflict. Listen, all of us in one way, shape, or form have experienced some type of conflict. How do we seek resolution? If for no other reason than just to be at this place where we can be confident, we can be confident that the enemy is not working in my mind with this anymore. That I I don't have to live under this anymore we're moving in this direction to see that we're moving in this direction to see that and that we want good for the church the church here and the church universal church if you would stand with me this morning we're going to pray together ask God to speak to us and then church we're going to sing and worship together so let us pray Father God we thank you for your goodness God we thank you for who you are God, we thank you that in the midst of our greatest weaknesses, Lord, that you are our most efficient strength. God, we recognize our brokenness. God, we recognize our sinfulness. God, we recognize our desperate need for you. God, in that the only way that we as the church of Jesus Christ can adequately represent you is by loving and leaning towards each other as broken people of God gather together in a diverse community of believers that our goal would be a unified mind. That we may look different, we may think differently about certain things, but ultimately, God, our goal is to see you receive the glory and honor and that we would grow in our personal faith and understanding of who you are and what you're doing, not for our own good, for the good of those around us. God, bless this time. Let us sing with confidence and let us praise you for who you are. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, join with us as we worship.